Welcome to Discovering Academia, an interdisciplinary podcast with preeminent professors from around the world, striving to stoke the curiosity of scholars everywhere. Today we talk with Henry Young, Distinguished Professor in the Department of Geography at the National University of Singapore. His work focuses on global production networks, in which he seeks to understand the relationship and dynamics of goods at various stages of production around the world, from raw materials to end product. In this episode, we talk in depth about the interconnectedness of various production networks with bases in Asia, from semiconductors to Apple iPhones. More broadly, Henry explains the historical conditions that led to Asia's export-oriented economic boom in the 60s and how that has shaped the globalization of industry today. As we wrap up, Henry shares his preference towards explanatory theories of geography, which are tied together with real examples and offer a seemingly more realistic view of the world. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, Professor Henry Young. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Brandon and uh, Keller, for uh, joining us uh, here at NUS, and uh, it's my pleasure to, uh, to join this podcast. We'd love to start off by hearing a little bit more about your story. What got you interested in economic geography and how you got to the National University of Singapore? Uh, I, uh, I've been interested in, uh, if you like, the uh, global spread of economic activities. So in that sense, I study economic geography where economic activities take place in this world. Um, so that's how I started uh, doing economic geography yeah, some 35 years ago. Yeah. Do you think there was a particular thing that brought you to economics? Ah, so I actually did uh, geography in this department uh, for my first degree, mm -hmm. uh, as well as economics as my other major. Okay. Right? Mm -hmm. So I actually have this so-called combination of economics and geography. So um, economic geography is within geography. If it's in economics, the interest in, if you like, uh, the speciality of economics, it will be called geographical economics mm -hmm. right? or spatial economics. So there are such specializations in economics. Yep. Has that always been a thing? Uh, kind of, yeah. So in economic geography, so okay, so technically there is a Nobel Prize given to Paul Krugman in uh, 2008, if you go back, uh, for his discovery in what's called new economic geography. So actually the term is used that way, although in geography we consider no Paul Krugman as an economist, as a geographical economist. Okay. So sometimes there is that confusion of term. Yeah. So economic geography is within geography. Mm -hmm. Geographical economics is within economics. Yeah. Huh. And is there a cross-blending between, like, do people work mm. within the same, mm. I guess, questions between the two? There, there are exchanges. So, for example, I mean, I, I hang out a lot with economists also. I mean, so, uh, in particularly in trade, international, international economics, that field has a lot of economists who are interested in, if you like, the geography of economic activities, particularly to do a trade. Mm -hmm. uh, so, like, this May, I was in Stockholm, uh, School of Economics, uh, actually presenting together with uh, uh, major economists who specialize in uh, international trade and uh, global value chain, global production networks. Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, in that sense, we have uh, a lot of interactions, but, of course, economics is a much bigger field than, mm -hmm. say, economic geography. Yeah. yeah. And then you just said it there, but could you give an explanation of what is a global production network slash mm -hmm. like global value chain? Yeah. So uh, the simplest answer is to put it as if you break down your iPhone or yes, I see a Macintosh in front of me, a MacBook Pro, then you'll find out who makes what and where. So what does it mean is that in each of your iPhone or laptop, you have uh, hundreds of components and then you will find out who, first of all, did the R&D and this is Apple in, uh, in uh, California, uh, of course, where the headquarter is as well as, of course, then who did the parts. There are many parts in it. Some are very expensive parts. Some are geopolitically significant, like the chips nowadays. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you find out where it's made and hence together this form a network that creeps 
crosses the whole world, right? From, you know, North America to Western Europe to Asia and so on and so forth. So that's what we study as what we call global production networks or global value chains. Mm -hmm. uh, the, sim the, the easiest way to, to learn about it nowadays is to say, during the pandemic, when you run out of toilet papers, in the supermarkets, then you start asking this supply chain problem. Yeah. Then you realize, oh my God, even toilet paper is made somewhere else. Yeah. The value chain, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. I think COVID definitely brought the supply chain to the forefront of everyone's eyes and yeah. really seeing the issues that arose from that. Is there any history with regards to East and Southeast Asia that mm. our listeners should have an understanding of as mm. we kind of get into this conversation of mm. the global dynamics of these value chains? Yeah, I think particularly for, you know, many audience base, uh, in particularly in North America, right? I mean, you, you have a certain notion of uh, all things made in China. China is a global factory. So uh, maybe a very brief introduction to the idea of um, uh, if you like the emergence of Asia as a whole uh, in the past, I will say 50 years since the 1960s. Mm -hmm. So primarily since the 1960s, uh, the world has become much more integrated through primarily the process known as globalization. Mm -hmm. Of course, the US, American corporations play a very big role in this because American firms from the very beginning internationalized. So Singapore benefited. Uh, we have HP, we have uh, early days of uh, Fairchild, some of your semiconductor firms that came, uh, set up a Texas instrument, set up shops in Singapore, make things. So that's how Singapore industrialized. That's how subsequently together, the so-called East Asian tiger economies, Singapore, South Korea, Taiwan, and Hong Kong, mm. all four benefited from, if you like, the 1960s, uh, what we call international uh, divisions of labor, meaning more American, subsequently European firms came to Asia, mm -hmm. set up production activities. So that's how the early wave started. Mm -hmm. Then of course you have the second wave of uh, Southeast Asian country like Malaysia, Thailand, our neighbors. This is before China started. Yeah. China was still quite sleepy before 1989. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and hence uh, we have the second wave of industrialization. Um, and then of course, followed by the emergence of China starting from, of course, China opened up in 79, but really in a bigger way um, in the uh, 1990s. And then, of course, after China joined the WTO in 2001, means 22 years ago, then China became much more sort of uh, uh, um, active in industrializing mm -hmm. to the extent you see today that the so-called uh, China dependency factor, right, in terms mm -hmm. of uh, uh, GPN, GVC, much uh, produced in China. So that's really something that I think audience should get a feel yeah, of the different stages that we, we Asia gets involved in. Yeah, GPNs, UVCs. And then with the tiger economies, mm. I noticed that Japan was left out. Were I, they, when did they come into this? Because I know that a lot of technology is also made there. Yeah, yeah. Good question, Brent. I kind of forgot to mention that before the Americans came in the 60s, Japan was already recovering from uh, the uh, the uh, the defeat in the Second World War, mm -hmm. right? So Japan was, of course, a major industrial power during a pre-Second uh, World War together with Germany, right? So by the 1960s, which is like 20 years after the Second World War, Japan already emerged very rapidly. Mm -hmm. So yes, Japan pre uh, Japan's re-emergence as a major industrial power started well before the tiger economies were okay. kind of articulated or involved in uh, global production networks. So in the 1960s, as much as American firms came to tiger economies, Japanese firms were also beginning to get out of Japan when it became more expensive to mm -hmm. produce at home. So they moved some of the more labor-intensive activities 
to again tiger economies. Okay. Right. So very good question. Uh, Japan uh, at one point by the uh, early 80s, Japan was seen by America as uh, the major economic threat. Yeah. yeah. So there was a book written called Japan as number one <laughs> that worried Americans. Yeah. In the 80s, Intel almost went bust. Intel, yeah. the very Intel you know of today, yeah, because of the Japanese uh, semiconductor uh, competition. Yeah. yeah, Japan was very, very strong in the 80s. Okay, very interesting. And with the initial migration of companies going to Asia, mm. was there a particular driving factor? Like, was it just cheap mm. labor? Or were mm. there other things in play that motivated firms to move there? Yeah. Again, very good question. I think if you look at this kind of earlier days, right, in the 80s, uh, pre-1980s, I will say the primary driver will be to do with um, lower costs of production, less so to do with a big market, because mm. at that time, much of Asia, except Japan, was still really developing country, uh, least developing or uh, less developing. So there wasn't huge domestic market to talk about. So what very much was to take advantage of lower costs of production in this part of the world to manufacture for North American, uh, the US in particular, and Western European markets. So in that sense, uh, to do a labor cost, land availability, space, government incentives. So Singapore offer, for example, in early days, tax-free. If you come, mm. you know, if you make profit, it's tax-free. So we call pioneer status. Mm. That's how Singapore developed by attracting what is called foreign direct investment. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we are quite famous for that, but the early day was about giving you tax incentive, cheap labor, uh, making things cheap uh, uh, and uh, labor costs low. And that's how we started. Yeah. Who do you think invests the most in Singapore? Mm. Then or now? Both. Oh, okay. Sure. I don't know. <laughs> so if you go back to the 19, yeah, I do have uh, numbers like this. Okay, so if I think of the 1960s, the major foreign investors were, of course, British, because mm -hmm. we just got out of a uh, British uh, empire, right? So Brit British uh, investment was big in Singapore at that time, including owning many companies. Mm -hmm. uh, the banks like Hong Kong Shanghai Bank, today Stan Standard Chartered Banks, were already here for over 100, by now it's over 100 years. Yeah. Then followed by the US, then Japan. So these three have consistently been the largest foreign investors of Singapore all the way until now, I think. If you look at Singapore's top three, uh, will be still these three. It's just different mix. Maybe US biggest followed by Japan and Britain today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then would you consider Chinese investment foreign? Since like the in Singapore. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh by Chinese you mean from uh People's Republic of China or we call mainland China. Yeah. Yes, it's yeah. a foreign investor. Okay. Yes, yes. <laughs> Singapore is an independent country. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But that's not within the top list? Uh, no, I don't think so. Because even today, if you think of... Uh, uh, in Hong Kong, yes, right? So yeah. from mainland China, Hong Kong... Uh, sorry, rephrase. Uh, Hong Kong's biggest foreign investor is likely to be from mainland China. But for Singapore, it's not because uh, China did, wouldn't have as much, for example, manufacturing investment in Singapore, mm -hmm. whereby we're driven by all these three major countries, yeah. uh, as well as Germany. Um, and then uh, in many other segments, not not so big. Yeah, I would. It's probably within the top five. Yeah, right. Yeah, but certainly not not the top three. I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And then, kind of leading into discussing why some like semiconductors are primarily made in Asia mm. and why it might be hard to mm. produce that elsewhere. Mm. Uh, could you start off with giving a brief background of what the information and communication technology industry is mm. as a whole mm. before we narrow down into like semiconductors? Yeah. So now, of course, ICT stands for Information and Communications 
technology. This is a very large segment of the economy in which, by and large, if you think about it, there are, by and large, three segments. One is your, if you like, digital economy means data only. Mm -hmm. So Google will be that kind, right? The platform guys, if you like. The other will be hardware people, right? Mm -hmm. So one is to do it the, uh, the data, if you like, which is not hardware, which is services. The other will be with hardware, which is manufacturing. So that will be your iPhone, your computers, uh, your um, whatever uh, telecommunication devices, yeah? Um, then the last component will be software. So there'll be, you know, a whole segment in ICT that is your Microsoft or, you know, Adobe, right? All the software guys. Mm -hmm. They are not the same as data people, right? So you won't consider, say, uh, 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 Adobe that does the uh, uh, Acrobat and many other softwares, Photoshops and so on, to be the same as Google. They are not yeah. the same kind of company. Got it? So there are three segments um, um, of the ICT industry. Data, hardware, and then software. Mm -hmm. All right? So I study primarily the hardware segment. Yeah. yeah. And this sec this ICT as a whole, just the manufacturing part, is very big. It's about 18% of the world's merchandise trade. Merchandise means goods. Mm -hmm. right? But if you consider data and software, then they are also very important in service trade. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's just that I don't have immediate data. Right? Yeah. Just the hardware alone is very important. Yeah. yeah. If you had to estimate what percent of like global wealth is like goods versus now shifting towards like data and like services, like how would you just value Difficult. I don't, yeah. I, I've not seen um, immediate calculation this way. Um, but of course I will imagine, it depends on how you measure this. If you measure by the say market value yeah. of all public listed firms, right? In data, in hardware, and then in software, then uh, data people are likely to be the most valuable. Yeah. <laughs> because if you just count, you know, the funds, right? The Facebook, uh, the uh, Google uh, means uh, Alphabet, yeah. uh, and then uh, Amazon for the data side, yeah. yeah? And then Apple in terms of the, <clears throat> the platform side of Apple, which is your iTunes, yeah? yeah? Uh, just this alone will be probably worth all of the hardware guys together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hardware guys will be like the other part of Apple, right? And then Dell, HP for computer, and mm -hmm. then for mobile will be, you know, all the Chinese brand plus uh, Korean brands like uh, um, Samsung and Airwick, uh, and, and the likes, yeah? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, like, like that was actually gonna be like the next question of how would you divide up companies like Facebook or Apple or mm. Amazon based on the fact that they do, they have a lot yeah. of data, but they also yeah. still have some other means of production. Yeah. But you so, so we, we we focus on the kind of they, they they do have. I mean, if you look at the annual report, they do uh, um, divide by what is called market segments. Mm -hmm. right? So the kind of data part of the business, including server business, like your cloud business. Mm -hmm. uh, for Amazon, they also have the usual uh, retailing, right? Uh, uh, meaning, um, uh, what do we call online uh, retail, mm -hmm. which is Amazon's original business, if you think of it, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. But they make more money probably now from uh, from uh, from cloud services yeah. and platform yeah. economy. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Can the clouds, like, can data based companies be studied in the same way in regards to the globalization? Because, mm. like, with trade, you can look at ports, and you can look at the movement, like the physical movement yeah. of goods. Yeah, is that easier or harder with mm. some of the data software companies? Yeah, very very 
tough question. In fact, that's the singular reason. Uh, the short answer is yes, it's much more difficult to study, if you like, the global production network or global value chain of data companies. Why? Because <laughs> it's very hard to track it. Mm -hmm. And that's why you find very few, very hard. I mean, very few studies I know of that study, if you like, the, the GPN or GVCs of services, mm -hmm. even banks let alone data platform companies. We do know, for example, that Google will use certain hardware, will contract certain services uh, to maintain your, you know, uh, um, areas where you put your data centers, for example, right? Mm -hmm. who, who, who supplies the electricity? Who does the cleaning? Who does the security? These are all part and parcel of your, if you like, subcontracting network. Mm -hmm. but it's very hard to find that data. Yeah. As compared to, say, break down your iPhone. Uh, that we know, easier. So in relative terms, there are more of us study coffee value chains. You know, Starbucks, yeah. I can trace all the way to the farmer. Yeah. Then uh, data, mm -hmm. very difficult. Platform, very difficult. Yeah. My mom is even like running into issues because she's in tax back in the US. Hey. And like now that companies are so international or like customers are all over the world yeah. using these services, yes. it's do they deserve to be taxed in that country where the customer comes from or is yes. it where it's based? And yeah. there's a lot of interesting questions that are yet to be solved. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And then with the ICTs, mm. we kind of touched on it already a little bit, but could you explain the shift from the national production mm. into the international production? Was that mm. the same shift that occurred in the 60s or mm. were there things that preluded that? Yeah. So, okay. So I will come, my comments are more relevant for the hardware part of this. Yeah? Mm -hmm. So one of the three, yeah. if you like, which is significant. Um, first is to say, if you think of the 1960s, 70s, all the way up to the early 80s, there was a significant degree of um, um, major brands from the US with, of course, a, a bit of exception of Canada, subsequently uh, BlackBerry, <laughs> if you remember that case, BlackBerry. Yeah. That used to be a time BlackBerry was almost number one, okay? There was a recent movie about it. Then uh, there was European brands, uh, the Philips, the, the many, you know, European brands. So at the beginning, they were all manufactured within domestic economies, right? In the US or in North America. So including early days of IBM PCs, for example, mm. yeah, was made. Uh, assembled in the US. Then started moving out, moving out initially more in terms of final assembly. Final assembly in this part of the world mm. to save cost. So at that time, there wasn't so much outsourcing to Asian manufacturers to do the final assembly. Mm -hmm. If you like today's Foxconn, you know of, yeah. they assemble the iPhone. Yeah. So in, at the beginning in the 60s and 70s, you will have factories in Singapore, in Taiwan, a little bit in South Korea also, uh, and Hong Kong that were owned by the American firms and brands themselves. Huh? Mm -hmm. So that's the early days. There wasn't too much what we call fragmentation of production. Mm -hmm. So production was still in-house, but in different subsidiaries of your company, headquartered in the US or in, uh, in Europe. Yeah? And then as Asian suppliers to these firms gain some know-how over time, making smaller things, uh, not the whole thing, but some parts, then some of these, uh, plus of course, some uh, um, fortuitous moment where the state was able to push for some incentives or what we call industrial policy mm -hmm. uh, through either subsidy or technology transfer, uh, state-sponsored research and development that enable uh, today's TSMC started off that way, learning how to do. Then Asian manufacturers began to make inroad into what we call the final assembly, including from design all the way to the whole thing made together. So not just making parts, make the whole thing. So today, of course, over 95% of 
virtually almost all of the notebooks are made by Asian manufacturers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, including Apple, all of it. Apple doesn't make a single thing really. Yeah. Yeah. So in that sense, there is this long progression from initially national production in the home country to international production in Asia, but owned by home country companies to today's much more fragmented production networks across the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then on the fragmented production networks, could you, is there a general estimate for mm. how many different companies are involved in making a cell phone? Um, if you could look at Apple, maybe, or a different one, I don't know, yeah. that like this like the semiconductor comes from here, the screen from here, yeah. just to... Yes. Okay, so uh, I do actually have data <clears throat> uh, up to 2019, uh, because I bought the data uh, for <laughs> every single brand, every single cell phone model, mm -hmm. and for every component. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I never do an average. But if you ask me for an estimate, I would say per cell phone, Right today, per smartphone, if you like, you have a few hundred components. Some are overlapping, same company. Mm. So easily, you will still estimate at least one or two hundred companies involved wow. by name. Yeah, <laughs> but each of those components may be made by another up to one hundred, few hundred companies that need to supply <laughs> the equipment that is used to make, for example, the chip. Right, because it's just one chip designed by, say, uh, Qualcomm. Yeah. that makes the application processor, except Apple. Yeah, So the Qualcomm uh, application processor is made by Taiwan's TSMC. But to make that chip, Taiwan's TSMC has to source many different equipments, right? Yeah. So there's another production network there. That's why it's, it's really complicated in that sense. Yeah, What you get in a cell phone is made by one to two or 300 companies, but each of those components may have another few hundred companies yeah. involved. Have you guys made maps of it, like on the world? Like here's a cell phone, like, or here's like the Apple iPhone 14, right. and then like right. there there are such uh, a we call teardown uh, figures available. Mm -hmm. Even in our textbook, we have uh, shown it, but it's not quite possible to. Uh, so, for example, it's not quite possible to detail everyone because it's just too messy, you know. So we 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 can only show very simple. Uh, for example, I just show you one one that I'm looking at. Uh, the cell phone one. Uh, where are, where's the iPhone? iPhone uh, is here. Um, so, well, I mean, uh, I'll, I'll I'll come back to it yeah. once I find it. Okay, if you, we we continue with the questions. Yeah. And then with the uh. The final manufacturing aspect okay. how does that impact the made in notation of a given product because i know like in the u.s a lot of people will be like oh i'll only buy it if it's made in the u.s which is yeah. pretty difficult but can people have essentially 99.9 percent .9 of a product made around the world and then just do that final little bit in-house and then qualify it as made in america or made in a given country yeah actually in terms of uh, international trade there is a, a common sort of uh, 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 there is a common way of looking at this matter is called rules of origin yeah so the idea is how much of a product comes is actually if you like produced in this location that you put your mark on so made in italy made in the usa right things like that okay so there is a rule of origin uh, this is uh, governed by international organizations such as wto so mm -hmm. uh, a custom you have to declare how much of this thing is from here, this mm -hmm. particular country you are reporting. Yeah, So there are ways to track. And hence, um, basically today, you can think of it as it's possible to be 100% made in America for, say, a college t-shirt. Yeah. If mm -hmm. the cotton, you use domestic cotton, 
right? And then of course the spinning, and then they go into the textile mill, they then go into the garment guys, right? Okay, so it's possible. But for complicated, I mean, that's not too complicated a product. Huh? Yeah. As compared to a, 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 you know, a device that you and I use, I mean, even, you know, the microphone you use, what about the plastic part, the steel, if it's metal, you know, all those, where they, if it's all made in the US, but what about raw material? The, the, the very, uh, petrol, the petrol, petroleum that is used to generate the plastics. It could be from the US theoretically, but also could be from the Middle East. So if you track all the way, it's highly unlikely that it's 100% from the same country. Mm -hmm. Highly unlikely. Yeah. It's possible, but very difficult. Yeah. And then, mm. especially nowadays, as people are talking about trying to renationalize some production, mm. I know it's probably more common like conversations in the West, yeah. but why is that difficult, especially for items like semiconductors? Yeah. So maybe let me start with the general and then go into the, the chips side of this story or semiconductors. Yeah. So in general, the whole idea of a reshoring, um, uh, bringing back, um, you know, it, it's, it's important. I understand a political matter huh, for people's livelihood, for jobs, uh, perhaps also nowadays in terms of uh, what we call supply chain resilience, mm -hmm. right? Uh, in case things go wrong, can I still get the thing, right? Your toilet paper example still, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, so can, should we make toilet papers in America because of that, right? It's possible. Of course, can be done. It's not technologically difficult. Huh? Yeah. It's just costly. So the first question is from a company point of view, most companies don't really want to do it because is costly it means uh, my profit margin will be less huh? so but if you force me i have to do it or else uh, you know tariffs will be imposed ah then okay then i have to do it then i bring back or i move my production away from countries that you don't like me to manufacture in say china huh? move it to southeast asia so to avoid tariffs so that will be uh, another alternative so that is more to do with just production cost matter mm -hmm. which can be shifted around globally because there are locations which are cheaper in terms of whether labor costs or very important, don't, don't be fooled. Sometimes a place, a country, a location may be cheaper in labor, but it's not cheap in total. Why? For example, the roads are broken. Okay, yeah. so you can make something cheap because you pay workers less, but then your shipment takes longer because the road is broken, your truck gets stuck. So then every day your good not shipped out costs you money. We, we, we call it you know, transit, transit time. So, so you have location that is cheap in labor, but logistics costs are high. Yeah. So if you balance it out, it's actually not that cheap. And that's why today China remains very competitive, not because China wages are low, are much more than Southeast Asian countries, but it's just that their logistics so strong and their ecosystem, ecosystem of suppliers, meaning you can easily find someone to fix your machine problem or change a part nearby. So in that sense, costs will be the uh, what we call total costs. It's yeah. a major component. Now on semiconductors, it's not so much about cost. It's about, if you like, a few factors, primarily to do with, uh, if you like, capital and technology. Now, first of all, semicon chip making is a very capital and technology intensive business. It's not about how many people you have. It's about how good are the engineers, right? With the right machine, and then uh, how much money you have because uh, each uh, manufacturing plant we call fab, mm -hmm. uh, wafer fabrication. The fab, each fab for advanced technology like uh, currently at uh, say three nano, even not yet, below 10 nano, let's say before, below 10 nanometer, you already need 10 billion and above. 
below three, I mean, now it's at three nanotechnology currently, that's 25 billion minimum, minimum. No 25 billion, forget it. Yeah, uh, USD, yeah. okay? Yeah. So it's a large amount of investment needed. That's why even Intel has has to hesitate how much I want to invest. Yeah? Yeah. So, so in that sense, you need to have that block of money and the US is coming up with, of course, the CHIPS Act, which is worth about 52 bill, mm -hmm. 50 bill, but it's not all used to be, uh, uh, it's not all used to build fabs. Some are to do with training people and so on and so forth. So, and that's why it's, it's a difficult thing. Yeah. If you want to ship production back in chip making to the US, you need to have this kind of level of investment, yeah, hundreds of billions actually. Mm -hmm. And then you need to have the expertise. Now, this is the tricky part. Uh, you guys probably uh, are less likely to want to work in a factory or fab than in nice Google office or Apple offices, <laughs> right? Meaning you want to be in services rather than manufacturing yeah. engineering, which is really the, the necessity if you want to be very advanced in chip making. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that's why currently um, the US actually is short of uh, chip engineers. Yeah. CHIP chip, not CHEAP. Okay. Yeah. Uh, actually, both. Like, you're not chip either. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. so it's very tough. It's very tough to reshore back. Yeah. 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 At both this kind of high end capital technology intensive stuff, as well as if you like the labor, the cost oriented items. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's why a long time ago, you know, this is, I, I remember it's about maybe. Uh, 2010 or nine, the New York Times reported it that then uh, uh, Obama asked uh, the late uh, Steve Jobs, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, what does it take to uh, bring iPhone assembly back, uh, uh, you know, the making of iPhone back to America? And uh, the late Steve Jobs said, the, those jobs ain't coming back. Yeah. yeah, this is exact wording, yeah, because I use it in my book, so I remember the exact <laughs> quote. Yeah, you can find it, it's in New York Times yeah. reported, yeah. I'm sure there's similar issues with farming and agriculture in the US too. It's like really hard to try to get the average American to, to do those type of jobs. Yeah, you see, because even, I mean, in California, you know you have a lot of seasonal workers yeah. from the South yeah. Yeah, to do exactly, you know, you, you want to collect the oranges, nice. Yeah. But it's tough work, yeah. Definitely. And then you briefly mentioned it, but the mm. different sizes of chips, could you talk about I think it's the legacy and mm. the advanced chips and yeah. what those are do both used for. I see. Because I think a lot of the media that we see is like talking mainly about the advanced chips yeah. and kind of neglecting yeah. the importance of the legacy. Yeah. Okay. So actually, if you think of the world of uh, semiconductors, there are different kinds of chips, right? So at, at, in common day languages, there'll be the advanced chips that are used in uh, processes. Huh? Mm -hmm. So uh, whether in terms, uh, so we call them logic chips. So these are the ones that demand advanced uh, technology and hence the expensive fabs. And they are used in your computers, in your uh, phones, in your uh, servers and AI applications. They, the, if you like, the brains of them. So that's one kind of chips. The second kind will be what we call memory chips. And all of us want memory chip because we want to store more photos or Instagram stuff, right? So memory chips are very important, okay? Mm -hmm. but. Uh, they are not necessarily needing the most advanced technology. The most advanced is good, but equally you don't need them to make uh, high density memory uh, chips that are used to store gigabytes, right? Yeah. Um, and then of course we have terabytes. So memory chip will be the second major component of what we call semiconductors. The third will be what we call analog chips. So analog chips are chips that are not digital by definition uh, we use here. So if you see something vibrating, so the sensing of vibration is not digital, it's analog, mm -hmm. 
yeah, or temperature, or when you run, right? Mm. You know, sensing your body, and those some of those are analog chips that does the job. Uh, and then the final type is called discrete chips. It's just on-off button stuff. So the analog and discrete chips are very often used in, for example, cars. You have all kinds of sensors in a car. Uh, you know, you know, vibration. You know, changing temperature, uh, uh, shocks, and things like that. So um, and the fifth type is what we call uh, optical semiconductors, which is actually your screen, you okay. know, your TV screen, your laptop screens, and that's another whole whole category, mm. optical semicon. Okay, so the most advanced fabs, uh, below 10 nano technology is used to uh, make primarily logic as well as quite a number of the memory mm. chips. All the other chips, you don't need so advanced technology. Okay, when we say how many nanometer, just to clarify, the nanometer refers to the width, the distance between two transistors. Okay. okay. Within a particular space, let's say your thumbnail. On your thumbnail, the most advanced uh, application processor, uh, the A15 chip of uh, Apple iPhone 15 has something like uh, 20 billion transistors or something like that put into it in a 3D stack together. The distance between each two is 3 nano. Wow. That's what 3 nano meant, okay? Mm -hmm. you, you know what nano is about 1 millionth uh, uh, mm, which is your <laughs> hair is about 1 mm, 1 millionth size of your hair. If you can see that, I don't want to talk to you guys like ghosts. <laughs> right? So that's small, right? And that's why you can pack billions. Mm -hmm. You want to pack billions because the phone is more and you want the processors to be more powerful, processing more information. The more transistors you put in, the more you can calculate 010101. But hey, you know, for many other applications, for you know, you put a chip in a anything that that moves. So you know, a toy dog, yeah. you know, con remote control. A toy dog has chips in the remote controller as well as the dog. But for that, you don't need the three nanometer kind of distance. You know, it can be the legacy chips uh, made in whatever you know, sixty four hundred something nanometer. Yeah. yeah. And then you were saying it would take about twenty five billion to mm. make a manufacturing facility mm. for a three nanometer Aye. chip. Yeah. And then you said the chips axe was fifty two billion. Aye. Yes. So and how much are like these top companies investing mm. when they're mm. trying to build new factories and all that? Yeah. So I give you some actual numbers, right? So if you look at um now it's twenty twenty three. So if you look at uh between twenty 2020 twenty to twenty twenty three, including this mm -hmm. year, right? So the Biggest investor is between Samsung and TSMC. Samsung is South Korea. TSMC is from Taiwan. Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, mm -hmm. TSMC. And then Intel will be somewhere in between. Intel historically has always been investing a lot. Intel was the leader for a long time to come here. Yeah? Okay, so these three companies far exceeded the number four. Okay, so each of them invest between roughly 30 to 40 billion per company per year. Yeah. in building fabs as well as maintaining existing fabs. They call, the, the, the term we use is capital expenditure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, So you use this expenditure to maintain the existing equipment and or build new fabs. Yeah. yeah, okay. So from 2020 to 2023, okay, this coming year 24 is going to be less because the, the, the semicon industry now is oversupply 
Yes, to your amazement. Because uh-huh. everybody building. Yeah. This industry always has the cycle up, down, up, down. Yeah. Yeah. So so that will be the kind of size we are talking about. Then how many of them will go for the Chips Act? Currently, my understanding is they some are still thinking because uh, Chips Act is not easy. You know, there are many conditionalities, which is not easy. Mm-hmm. You have to have childcare facilities or something like that if you use the uh, 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 Chips Act. Yeah, and then you are not supposed to make excessive profit, which means you have to show open your book and show how much money you make. Yeah, yeah, it's quite tough. And then you once you receive it, you are not supposed to invest. I think in it didn't specify the country, but countries of concern we know it's China <laughs> uh, within ten years or something like that. Interesting. So then you know, for you to take five billion from the, I mean, you are not going to get fifty two billion. Yeah, if you're yeah. Intel or you are Samsung, you get five billion, but you're going to lose those things opportunity. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, the actual industry talk from what I gather reading, um, uh, industry, uh, um, um, what's that called? Uh, um, uh, sites, uh, block sites is that many big ones may not go for it. Yeah. Because the strings are very difficult. Yeah. That would make sense. Yeah. Seems like it would tie your hands more than it would actually help you if you're already investing 35 yeah. billion. Yeah. Like because you already five. have that kind of capital. What's the point to get 5 billion? But then on the other yeah. hand, you're stuck. But uh, actually, what Intel is doing is quite smart. It goes Germany and then get 20 billion support from Germany to build new fabs. Yeah. 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 That, that, that doesn't come with some of these strings. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. So there's not much hope. For it to come back to America, realistically, there will be. I mean, so TSMC has already committed uh, Arizona Fab investment, although now delayed one year in terms of opening. Uh, again, lack of engineers, <laughs> yeah, and and as well as some other factors. Uh, 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 Samsung has also invested further in Texas. Mm. Uh, that's where they have been. Uh, Global Foundry, which is US based, has. Uh, committed. So in that sense, um, actually, it's a Middle East um, share uh, owner, but. America, US based. Um, so, in, uh, also committed to investing in new fab. So, in that sense, there will be more uh, semiconductor manufacturing activities in the US in the next, say, five years or 10 years than before 2020. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not fair. Right. But in terms of unplugging from the places that you're talking about, Taiwan, South Korea to America, that I don't think it will happen. Yeah. yeah. You'll be in kind of new facility. Yeah. But not the most advanced, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. If you if you follow the the specifics. Yeah. And then within like given the fact that all the firms have to be globalized, mm. I think the paper we were reading mentioned how the firms in order to win out need to have different strategies. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about what a few of those strategies are, just the ways of thinking that these firms are taking mm. on? Mm. All right. So of course, in general, there are different ways uh as we sort of um study in, in terms of what we call global production networks, right? A firm can choose to what we call in, internalize uh, everything, make your own. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So in economics, you call this make or buy decision. If you are the executive, you have to decide, you want to make this thing yourself or you want to buy from somebody. Yeah. So the make buy decision is very important and it happens in many, many things that you do as a company. Um, so you will find that in, in the ICT industry hardware that I study, um, you have exact competitors adopting buy or make. So in other words, there is no generic strategies to say, oh, the buy strategy will tend to make more profit. Not necessary. So if you look at, okay, I'll give you an example, right? So if you look at Apple, uh, iPhone, which is a lot of outsourcing, 
right? In terms of manufacturing, uh, Apple still make a lot of profit, right? So it's no problem outsourcing. But then Samsung that makes Galaxy and other smartphones uh, in-source in a lot, mm. including the final assembly, which is primarily done in Vietnam. So Vietnam is the large base. Uh, Samsung something like Samsung account for something like twenty uh, percent of Vietnam's exports in manufacturing. Right. Incredible, one fifth or something like that, roughly. Yeah, because yeah. they make like few hundred million smartphones per year there. Because Samsung sells about what three, three, four hundred mil. Hmm. The whole world is one point four billion smartphones per year. So roughly, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. iPhone is another few hundred mil. Got it? It's a few hundred million, not not few million, few hundred. Okay. So you have exact competitor, number one and number two. And one is outsource a lot, one is insource a lot. Samsung uses its own memory chips, of course, its own display, right? Because mm. it makes those things in different parts of Asia, including South Korea. So that's for smartphone. For computer, it's the same. So Lenovo, which is the Chinese uh, laptop brand, mm. which used to be IBM. Yeah, IBM oh, was sold because it was not profitable. IBM's, you know, invented the PC, yeah. but eventually uh, lost the war, so to speak, PC war, and then the uh, IBM PC was sold, yeah, mm. uh, to the Chinese brand then called Legend, but then eventually changed name to Lenovo. Today's Lenovo, that's why you will see uh, ThinkPad. Yeah. ThinkPad is the IBM uh, uh, patented uh, name, so yeah. to speak. Huh? Okay, so Lenovo today still assemble almost half of his own laptop, whereas uh, HP, Dell, and uh, Apple, which are the three American laptop brands, mm -hmm. outsource almost 100%, almost. Wow. Yeah, So and yet all can make money. Mm -hmm. So the moral of the story is there is no predetermined outcome uh, in terms of the strategies firms adopt. Each firm is unique, mm -hmm. yeah depending on its own, what we call internal, its own sort of a strategy, its own supply chain management style, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Mm. And then especially for those companies that do decide to outsource a lot, mm. how are geopolitical mm. issues starting to influence, especially now between the US and China? Yeah. So this question, uh, the nearest answer you get is uh, Tim Cook uh, at the uh, Apple headquarters, because that's the question that must puzzle him all the time. Yeah, yeah. because, you know, <laughs> much of his uh, iPhone is assembled in China by Foxconn, mm. now move a little bit to India, a certain percentage. Mm. Much of Apple Macintosh is assembled in China, as well as a little bit now in Southeast Asia. So he, he has to deal with this, because Apple is the largest company by market capitalization currently either apple or tesla roughly but it's big enough you know what i'm saying yeah it's like two 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 something trillion dollar company apple yeah uh, i've been doing apple using apple for 30 plus years so from the day when it's a cute little macintosh okay so how are they uh, uh, looking into this matter of course i don't have a generic answer except to say currently to political consideration i'm afraid to say trump's all economic consideration Meaning, uh, for corporate executives, um, geopolitical concerns, particularly in particular U.S.-China relations or rephrase deteriorating U.S.-China relation, uh, will impact significantly on uh, the way in which these corporate executives want to restructure their global production networks. Mm -hmm. uh, there is clear evidence of what's called China Plus decision. Meaning, uh, if possible, many. Uh, corporations want to shift some or uh, not shift production out of China, not necessarily, but certainly to have alternative sites. 
That's why it's called China Plus. Mm -hmm. Sometimes in the media, it's called China Plus One. Sometimes, of course, it's not just one. Sometimes China Plus Three. You want three other alternative. And and this in the name of what is called supply chain resilience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But remember, resilience comes with costs. If you want more than one, meaning you've got to have two or three, that means you have a second best, you have a third best. And by definition, second best is not as good as the best, meaning incurred more costs. Definitely. And that's why you will have a general, part to a certain extent, the current inflation that we all get is part and parcel of this problem too. We, in other words, corporations are no longer able to optimize their production costs in the most optical way, opti uh, optimal way, because of the, the risk consideration associated with uh, geopolitical tensions, uh, war, and other matters, mm -hmm. right? uh, environmental matter also. I mean, it's not just geopolitical, uh, climate change, yeah. and so on and so forth, yeah. Do you see a lot of firms moving around to deal with the effects of climate, especially in coastal mm -hmm. regions? Uh, yes, but also to do with uh, that uh, depending on the actual industry you're looking at, there'll be more stringent environmental uh, regulation. Uh, give you an example, right? I mean, <laughs> despite all the great thing about what we hear about uh, TSMC from Taiwan, TSMC consume one company, uh, something like roughly 10% of Taiwan's electricity <laughs> and 10% of Taiwan's water. Wow. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You want to make advanced chips? Uh, you got to use a lot of electricity and water because a lot of etching process, wash, etching, wash, even though you can recycle a lot, but still not enough. And this, you can actually go and check it out. Uh, there are uh, ex uh, report environmental reports on this. So basically, you're going to have, uh, and then of course, uh, if it's to do a semiconductor, you want also to, to be away from earthquake zones and California, as you know, uh, is not that friendly towards that. And that's why Intel always has to worry about this because it affects in mm -hmm. California, right? The origin, yeah? So the moral of the story is, uh, it's not just geopolitical, but geopolitical is the new factor mm -hmm. that is really much more earth-shaking, so to speak, than the environmental factor, which always has been there, yeah. yeah. And when did you start to see that pick up more weight, especially with regards to China? Mm. Geopolitical factor, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, I would say, this is before the pandemic. As you know, the trade war started sometime 2018 when then uh, Donald Trump Im imposed uh, tariffs on China, right? So from 2018, at that point when I was interviewing firms, they were, they were okay, I mean, but they saw it more as just a business cost. Mm. It wasn't seen as big geopolitical tension. Yeah, but by today, this five years forward now, we know that uh, the U I mean, you guys are from the US, you know there is quite strong bipartisan kind of view on so-called the China threat. And hence, I think it's fair to say, uh, I, I personally don't believe that this, I'm, I'm afraid to report, huh? the 2020s is not going to be a good time for all of us. Meaning this tension won't go away, at least in this decade. Mm -hmm. I cannot imagine that suddenly tomorrow, uh, the two countries uh, uh, huddling, you know, be good friends together. It's probably not until 2030s, at least. Mean, meaning the next seven years will be tough. Mm -hmm. And hence, I mean, a company has quarterly report to generate uh, profitability. So you can't wait for seven years. Yeah. You only have three months for the next quarter. You have to report, right, to Wall Street. So what are you going to do? You have to do something if you're the corporate executives. So that's why right now there is a lot of restructuring going on in terms of uh, global production networks and global value chains. What are some of those biggest trends in the restructuring? Um. The one major one is uh, 
the the con- the building of alternative supply bases mm-hmm. right outside China, Southeast Asia benefits from this. So actually, ironically, our neighbor Malaysia is doing very well in uh, semicon because there is a lot of packaging business. You know, after mm-hmm. the chip is made, you need to package it, assemble, package, and test it. So there is a lot of investment. And Intel just announced one big investment in, in Malaysia as well. So Malaysia is doing well on that. Singapore will benefit also a lot. Actual chip making, mm-hmm. uh, you you may be surprised. We actually make about ten percent of the world's chips. Where on the island? Singapore. No, uh, where on the oh, island? Oh, we actually have a few areas where there are many uh, fabs. So Woodlands has what's called a semiconductor park. If you go there and then near the airport site, it's called Passeris mm-hmm. near uh, Tampines area. Also has a lot of fab. You, you can see, you know, their names on, on, the, on the building. Yeah. Okay. And then the suppliers nearby. So Singapore make about 10% of the world's chips, 20% of the world's chip making equipment. Wow. Mm-hmm. Equipment, the machine that is used to make the chips. Yeah. That's, that's for a, a little city, you know? Yeah, we just looked it up. It was like 10 kilometers like tall and like 20 kilometers wide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole island. Yeah. <laughs> so country. actually, uh, uh, there is, uh, so Micron, for example, that makes memory chip from America. Micron announced a big investment in Singapore. Yeah. Uh, uh, they are already here. It's just that they, they make more investment. Right. So some of the, the Southeast Asian countries are doing well because of this sort of a necessity to build a kind of assurance, uh, um, not assurance, uh, insurance to only in China, mm-hmm. right? So you cannot be only in China now. Your customers in North America, in Europe uh, will say, no, 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 no. I want you to make sure that, you know, there should be at least one more site that can supply me yeah. or else I won't choose you. Yeah. Yeah? So this is not just semiconductor, but many other industry, yeah. And then are Chinese companies setting up like subsidiaries or like investing in non-Chinese companies yeah. because of like these geopolitical issues? So American companies can say come to Singapore and partner with a different company yeah. who is Singaporean but t- like also heavily influenced by China or invested in by China. Mm-hmm. Is are those type yeah. of things occurring? Yeah, I mean again, very, very good observation. I mean. Is exactly happening in such a way that you're going to find, uh, not right now already, uh, okay, right now, um, quite a lot of uh, Chinese suppliers of Apple, for example, uh, not moving out, but they will set up additional shops in where uh, locations where Apple is going, right? So India, um, in Southeast Asia, which one was announced to be making the uh, some... Uh, Apple computers is, I think is it. Um, uh, which one is not Thailand? Um, is in what's in Vietnam or Cambodia? So you have Chinese suppliers, mm-hmm. mainland Chinese firms that supply to say Apple's global production network, mo- setting up new operations. If you like, follow the customers. So there is that event happening, and that's why the so-called China Plus eventually will lead to a a different location, but still probably a, by and large the same mix of firms. Yeah. It's just that they have multiple operations. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. So um, because there are just many components that uh, firms in China have already cornered the market. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not even talking about electrical vehicle, battery, that kind of stuff. I'm just talking about, you know, the guys who make the case that go into this computer. There are only four or five companies, you know? This computer yeah. case is very expensive. Yeah, it's hundred, over 100 USD because it's nice metal, right? I mean, you're Apple, yeah. nice touch. <laughs> yeah, somebody has to make this case, the computer case. It's very critical component, but mm-hmm. using metal, yeah. 
Mm. It's magnesium uh, um, uh, alloy. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Lightweight, but very uh, hard. Yeah. Yeah. Then for customers that are worried, like in the US or in Europe, about all these firms being in Asia and mm. Asian governments possibly having control. Yeah. And I know in one of the talks, you mentioned how the decision-making process is still in the Americas or in America, in Europe. Like it's not just these governments that are going to come in and say, okay, no, we're doing this. Even though they might have that ability, the decision-making process is still generally spread out. Sorry. And, and Yen, your question is whether in Asia there is a lot of state intervention in corporate decision. Yeah, essentially. Like, are these concerns valid, especially the American concern? I think I think it's fair to say um, that the role of the state in uh, East Asian economies, perhaps minus Hong Kong, right? Uh, if you think of uh, South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, even Japan at the beginning, um, and China, of course, um, the role of the state is heavier mm. than what we typically understand as excuse me the the anglo-american economy or capitalism mm. however it depends on how you look at it uh, there are also studies done uh, which claim that america is actually what we call a hidden developmental state hidden because um, much of the state uh, gets involved not so much in directing corporate decisions but in uh, engendering technological innovations how does it work? Very much to the defense. So mm. uh, Department of Defense uh, fund many projects, including your touchpad today. You know, your iPhone touchpad is actually the Department of, Even Google, day one, the, 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 the found, co-founders uh, Stanford PhD was funded by, I think, a defense uh, PhD scholarship or whatever. Yeah, the Google founder, one of the co-founders. Yeah? So the moral story is there is a lot of uh, State support, but in a different way, not directing, not giving to company A and, you know, to, to make phones, eh? but to support technological innovation. Mm. The U.S. is very strong in this. And that's why the U.S. is leading in many technologies. Yeah? The role of the state in Asia tends to be slightly different, right? Until recently, U.S., we wouldn't say it pursue industrial policy. Now it does. Semicon is one of such example. Uh, but in Asia... In th those economies I mentioned, even from Japan from the beginning, there was explicit intention of developing certain industries. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, the state directed uh, uh, economic development, including, I cannot exactly say it's corporate decision, but you know, if you think of, uh, uh, but certainly through ownership. So Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing, TSMC, the beginning, at the beginning, it was 40% owned by Philips. It was Philips technology transfer, but the remaining 60% was owned by the Taiwan government. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Same goes to many Singaporean firms, including Singapore Airlines today. Yep. Uh, in South Korea, okay, the big names you know of the Samsung, LG, Hyundai, mm -hmm. these are private, family-ish owned. But when they first started in the 60s, not first started when they were when South Korea were industrializing, uh, they had a long period of one strongman uh, government um, that actually directed uh, the economy for like 20 years. Yeah, so um, at that time, uh, the role of the state was very strong. Yeah, yeah, pushing this shape. So, for example, Samsung wouldn't have gone into electronics industry if then what's called Park Chung-hee was the military guy who had a coup and then run the country for 20 years. Uh, and he was directing some of these guys to, to go into those industries. Yeah. Right. Do you think that has played a significant role in the very rapid development of Asia? Looking back, 
Yes, but then you see um, in in the literature there is a lot of uh, academic literature, a lot of debate on this matter, right? Is it because the state was very gung ho? Uh, one may argue authoritarian, uh, and hence uh, the nice way of putting it is very uh, is very uh, uh, visionary, right? Not so nice way is uh, dictatorial, yeah. So political politically you know you know very repressive uh, labor ac union activities were curbed da 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 right okay um the short answer i would argue is that it's not just because the state was visionary nor powerful enough <coughs> but also there was at that time a kind of international vacuum so the global environment was quite favorable for this kind of thing right <coughs> because china wasn't strong yet mm. there was no viable competitor among developing countries and yet developed country like the us and western europe were looking for low cost of production right in the 60s 70s so where would you go you will have come this part of the world anyway so to speak yeah. uh, then you will have said hey, why not they, they they went to a latin american countries or african countries at that time so africa uh, latin american country had uh, pursued its own policy what's called import substitution industrialization mm -hmm. means not export oriented they want to create their own industry and close store so makes it very difficult so otherwise if you're an american firm you will naturally go brazil will be the easiest uh. brazil and mexico should develop much faster than why come asia so far you see what i'm saying yeah so because asia at that time was export oriented meaning mm. you come make your stuff and then you export back to your home country no problem we happy to provide the labor do the job yeah but in latin american country they say they don't want they don't want that model because it's very exploitative which of course is true too yeah so more of the story is that <coughs> east asian development took place during this what i would call fortuitous period when the world was relatively stable uh, american and european capital were was coming out right quite and us also at that time due to a, uh, at that time what we call cold war considerations mm -hmm. were quite okay with asians making the stuff selling back to america uh without any tax meaning that uh you willingly gave up your manufacturing jobs because you need supposedly these east asian countries and economies to develop fast as a what's called a, a kind of bastion or protective war against communism mm. so there was that then that geopolitical consideration which is very well documented in the academic literature so it's not just about the state doing the right thing in asia but also the us giving us a chance to develop mm -hmm. by protecting us so to speak giving us capital technology and uh, knowledge and the market very important right so then mm. Of the many things you've published, mm. we saw that you're publishing a new book coming out, I think, in November. Uh, this uh, new one, the theory book? Yes, just yeah. came out. Yes, just, oh, just came out. Okay. Yeah. I just got it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Myself, yeah. So we're wondering if you could <laughs> give a brief overview of some of those theories that <laughs> you know, a student should try to take on when they're looking at mm. geography. Mm. And then just real quick, it's called Theory and Explanation in Geography. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, uh, this book, uh, as you can tell, has three symbols, uh, triangle, square, and a circle. Does that remind you anything? I, I I wrote about it in the preface. I chose this book cover, which is not like a very beautiful aesthetic art, right? Normally, you know, like some some you know some of our big name geographer use beautiful art. So I chose this because it's real. It's very re real. The three symbol came from. I don't know whether you watch it. Uh, it's called. Um, anyway, what am I talking? Uh, 
Um, um, the, the Korean drama. The Squid, oh, Squid Game. Game. Squid Game, you watch it? We haven't watched ah, it. Ah, okay. <laughs> the reason is because when I was thinking, writing about the book, uh, Squid Game was very prominent. Mm -hmm. so, so I wanted to use the symbol to, to talk about this kind of life and death matter. Why is this life and death? Because in this book, I'm not proposing new theories in the book, but the book is written for geographers and the discipline geography to remind ourselves that when we talk about theory, what do we mean by theory? So I added the word explanation, no, rephrase actually. Um, I used the word, I added the word theory to what was originally a very famous book published in 1969 by our, actually the most famous geographer called David Harvey called Explanation in Geography, 1969. Yeah? Everybody in geography tend to, should know that book anyway. So I added theory and is to say that perhaps uh, our theory should be explanatory as well. So theories can be uh, in different ways. So some theories you know of may not be explanatory. They are not meant to explain things. They are meant to be, for example, interpretive. Yeah? A theory can be about interpreting something. Mm -hmm. That can be theory. A theory can be used to, as a narrative, uh, more in humanities. I mean, in natural sciences, uh, you think of theories as uh, almost by definition uh, explanatory, yeah. causal yeah. in nature, right? So that's the kind of theory that I would like to see more being developed in geography. So in this book, I wrote about that as well as went back to some of the existing sort of big social theory or critical theory as we call it, uh, to interrogate what those authors might mean when they use the word theory. Mm -hmm. So the book is not about proposing new theory, but about re-examining what theory means. Mm -hmm. And my preference is more explanatory theory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's what the book is written about. Yeah. Is there a major example of what one of these theories are yeah. that you may Aye. you might have an issue with it Aye. because it's not explanatory? Aye. No. So that is the more complicated. Okay. So I have to be given that this will go public. I want, must make sure <laughs> that my geographer friends and colleagues will, will not get too agitated <laughs> because I'm going to name anyone. Huh. Uh, uh. Okay. Let me use one. All right. Uh, for example, uh, in, 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 in chapter two, uh, uh, because for the audience purpose, if you Google the, the, the book, you will see that in terms of table of content, I have, uh, uh, Marxism means Marx theory. I have, uh, then post-structuralism, uh, and, uh, uh, in which we have actor network theory, assemblage theory. And then, of course, I have a more radical approaches known as feminist theory, post-colonial theory. Mm -hmm. uh, in the US, there I say critical race theory. Yeah. And yeah, so on. Yeah. yeah. All of this kind of, uh, 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 approaches that use the word theory. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So one example I use here is actor network theory. Okay, which is not as contentious, because as uh, these are okay actor network theory, which is quite commonly used in what's called science and technology studies. Uh, very much came out of the French philosophical tradition. Uh, so even the the most prominent scholar, the French philosopher called Bruno Latour himself, uh, as well as many of the followers, mentioned that actor network theory is not a theory, it's an approach. Approach to, if I follow the scientists, follow the equipment, follow you know the lab and what's in the lab, not just the people, hmm. right? So what's actor network is that, you know, if you think of how, what makes today's recording possible, uh, of course, we have two wonderful students of you, you have probably me, but also we have the wonderful equipment, the battery that decide whether we can continue or not continue <laughs> just now, things like that. So that's what actor network theory will tell you that to. To, to to describe today's happening, you need to describe all this, human mm. and non-humans, eh? called actors, actants. Yeah. But it's not really explanatory. 
So in geography, we have quite a lot of people use this approach to, if you like, narrate, describe events and happenings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I thought, if that's the case, then why call this a theory? (laughs) And hence, I use it as an example. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You may apply the same approach to critical race theory, but I'm not going to go into detail (laughs) now. Yeah. Yeah. Whether critical race theory is a theory, for example. Mm -hmm. Everybody should be entitled to ask that question. Yeah. Then, of course, naturally, you will say, what does the theory mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So your focus is more just what is more of the practical implication Mm -hmm. of our ideas explaining how we view how the world is working Mm. yeah in the book i go into more specifics for example if you want to develop what we call explanatory theory then you have to ask yourself uh, how do you know what is an explanation so if that's the case then you need to identify what we call the causality of happenings what Mm. makes things happen in the social world and this is a social science book and not natural and not about the natural world uh, nature and so on so if you want to explain societal happening right we call happening in society and space a geographer we're interested in happening in society and space space means geographically Mm -hmm. so if you want to explain that then you have to ask yourself how things happen and why they happen the way they happen. Now, once you ask the why question, there seems to be some sense of causality, right? But remember, we are not natural science. We cannot have, oh, factor A will apply in all cases like gravity. No, no such thing. It's not possible, yeah? So then we need to understand causal factors in their what we call context, Mm -hmm. right? So that's where the book talks about the idea of causal powers, certain kind of mechanism, in so- social mechanism, we call that. In it. For example, um, um, in, in, in sociology, analytical sociology, one of the commonly known uh, 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 mechanism is the idea of um, uh, self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. If we, three of us, keep thinking that we are smart, we will do things that we think we are smart, but then we may not. But because we keep telling ourselves we are smart, that's why we self-fulfill our own prophecy that we are smart, right? <laughs> but yeah. we may not. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, so that that will be a kind of uh, analytical or if you like explanatory mechanism. So that's what my book is trying to do is to bring out some of these elements to interrogate existing uh, uh, theory with the word theory in it. Mm -hmm. And then to explain to our geographer audience that perhaps uh, we can consider also developing theories that are explanatory, Mm -hmm. which are very common, which are, excuse me, more commonly done in say economics, poli science and sociology. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm sure the benefits from that mm. book will go much further than just uh, geography students. I hope so, but I need to convince our own audience first, means geography uh, audience <laughs> yeah. first. Hey, hey. Then uh, hopefully uh, it will work. I, I don't know, but anyway, you know, this is quite fun to write. Yeah. 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 And then talk, kind of talking mm. about the process of writing mm. and the fact that when we saw you've written over 110 papers, 50 book chapters, six books now. Mm. How do you balance all of that and the research and interviewing people and like also teaching? Yeah. And sleeping. (laughs) Uh, As I mentioned in the new book, uh, my little long secret in the world, and most geographers know, yeah, I do sleep in the afternoon and then see, I have a couch (laughs) and this couch can come out. Uh, It's like a business class uh, seat. So I do nap after lunch. that explains my productivity. No, actually, I'm quite a focused guy. I think I think the, o- the singular thing that I want to um, leave with you guys, whether to and to the audience, is that is that you know less is more. Don't do too many things at the same time. Stay focused. Then probably you will get more done 
on that thing that you focus on. And that's my approach. I don't do too many things, but everything I do, I want to do it well. Mm-hmm. And and that's the my own approach to doing it. And in terms of productivity, there are plenty of people who write many more hundred articles than me. Yeah, if you, I mean, even my own department colleagues. But I tend to do things that I want to do, and then um, and I will do, I will execute them. So it means I plan carefully in terms of the time commitment, resources. Yeah, but not overstretch myself. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's why uh, I don't often say yes. Yeah. Like today's uh, podcast, but hey, once yes, then I will do my best for you. Yeah. That's my approach. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we thank you for saying yes. Yeah. Oh, it's my pleasure. <laughs> yeah. I think I kind of covered it, but do you have any other parting advice to students? Um, uh, I do. Like what I wrote in my book's preface, um, which is really, I mean, the pandemic changed many of us and I've gone through also, you know, life-changing experience, not myself, but, you know, my own parents passing, not due to COVID, mm-hmm. but uh, due to old age in the period. So in my book, I ended with uh, an advice to all readers, my friends and colleagues and family and so on. And to both of you and many audiences that don't forget your tie. Your tie, T-I-E. Mm-hmm. What do you mean? Uh, in my book, I explain it means Take it easy. The world is, I'm afraid to say, not very certain right now. Wars are happening and tensions are high. Economies are a bit shaky, right? Stock markets are a bit floaty. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some countries, I won't mention which one, professors may not mark your exam. You may know which one. <laughs> and hence, um, take it easy. Yeah, if the flights lost your luggage, take it easy. Yeah, so my part- parting statement is to say, do your best. But when things don't work out, don't blame yourself or others too much. Just take it easy. Yeah. Perfect. T-I-E. Beautiful way to end it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Yep. Thank you. To continue your learning, go to our website, discoveringacademia.com. There, you'll find the show notes, resources mentioned, ways to get involved, and much more pertaining to each professor. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and join our newsletter to stay up to date. Until next time.